My name's uh, Dave. I'm one of the pastors at Mountain View, executive pastor there since Mountain View started some 23 plus years ago. Really glad to be able to work with Pastor Ken these days here at Sunnyside and um, preaching for him or in his stead this morning and really glad to be here. We obviously share the same barber. Uh, Don't have the same personal record for the mile though. Ken's a little bit faster than me. I kind of peaked in about seventh grade in track and field and then went downhill from there. I don't know if you can relate to that at all, but it's slower. Plus, I can't do that box jump from the ground like Pastor Ken does, so I got to take those far stairs. If I would have fallen on my way up, that would have been kind of embarrassing. So, didn't want to start like that, but really glad that you're here with us this morning and looking at the book of Exodus, continuing our series, Join the Story, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15, 16, and 17 today, so I encourage you to open up your Bibles and take a look there. Last week, we were in the crossing of the Red Sea. The final act of deliverance by God of the people of Israel from the Egyptians, the place where they had been in slavery for hundreds of years, plagues, all kinds of things going on, culminating in this defeat of the Egyptian army of the Red Sea, and now the people of Israel are across that sea with a sea separating them from Egypt. So the deliverance is done, the exodus is done. And they celebrate that with song, and that's what they're doing in the chapters just prior to the chapters we're going to look at. But we're really jumping into a passage that just happens, you know, very shortly after their deliverance from the Red Sea. And there are going to be three passages that we look at, and there are three sequences of grumbling and complaining by the people against God. Now, grumbling and complaining, that comes easy to us. We don't have to work at it, right? You don't have to take a class on how to whine and complain, right? We learn how to do that from when we're this big or even smaller, right? You know what whiny kids are like. Nobody has to teach them how to do that. It just comes natural. It's part of the sin nature, we say, as Christians. And we tend to complain in our lives, though, about pretty minimal stuff most of the time. Occasionally, we have something real to complain about, but most of the time it's whiny about little stuff, right? I hate, I hate standing in lines, for instance, and I'll complain about long lines, which means that for me, air travel is one of the most annoying things that I do because, man, you go to an airport, it's just one line up after another, and I just don't like them. But it's completely lame, right? Because when you think about it, I'm going to an airport so that I can get in a metal tube that's going to shoot me up to 30,000 feet and rip me across the country at 500 miles an hour, and I'm complaining about that? It's unbelievable that I get to do that. But I complain because I don't line like lines. We call that a first world problem. Anybody ever heard that phrase, right? There's some videos on the internet that are hilarious about this. I'm going to show you one. It's just good to fun, funny to laugh at. So take a look at some first world problems here. Every year of every day, thousands of people fall victim to FWP. I'm so cold. I'm starving. Nobody cares about me. Also known as first world problems. I'm so cold. Somebody set the AC to 72. I needed it at 73. Starving. Oh, it has leftovers. Nobody cares about me. Nobody commented or liked my status. Hi, I'm Ryan Higa, and for just five hours of attention a day, you could help somebody with FWP. Everyone keeps putting so much pressure on me. I don't know what I want for my birthday. I have too much chips for my dip. But if I open a new dip, I'll have too much dip for my chips. Why does Apple keep making new iPhones? Now I have to get another one? They've been through so much struggle. The remote's over there, but I'm all the way over here. So much hardship. My iPhone 5 is too big for my skinny jeans. So much attention, tension, tension, tension. I poured my cereal without checking to see if we had milk. We did it. So please, show your support and send them this video. And show them how much we care about their FWPs. I bought too many groceries. 
Now I'll have to make two trips. All you have to do is call the URL 1-800.org and we'll send you the FWP helping kit, which includes a bridge and a straw. Here's a bridge. Now get over it. Here's a straw. Now suck it up. With your help, we can put an end to FWPs for good and focus on the real problems, like violence or drugs or people who still don't know which you're to use, the Beebs, Crocs, Yellow Starbursts, the real issues at hand. So please, join me. Help a soul and help us all. What the heck is that? Oh. My internet's so slow, it always has to buffer first. <laughs> All right, that's awesome. I'm not quite sure what the yellow, do people not like the yellow starburst? Is that what the problem is with those? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> first world problems. The people of Israel had uh, some tougher problems. To their, in their defense, they were actually complaining about the fact that they didn't have water to drink and they didn't have any food. Uh, so they were literally, at least felt like they were dying of thirst and dying of hunger. Uh, and so when we take a look at these stories, we can at least be a little bit sympathetic with what they were going through as they were trying to uh, struggle to trust God. But that's really what this past, these passages are about. It's not just about grumbling and complaining. We can spend half an hour talking about how it's not good to grumble and complain. We know that. What's underneath that? And, and here the passage is really talking about the Israelites' capacity to trust God. And that's what we're going to take a look at and apply to our own lives. So, starting in uh, Exodus chapter 15, I'm going to read the first uh, sequence of complaining that happens. And this is starting in verse 22 of Exodus chapter 15. It says, Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Marah, the water was too bitter to drink, so they called the place Marah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. And it's not that it was like a magic piece of wood. God was just taking something really regular and ordinary, right? Giving Moses a simple instruction, and God was doing the miracle of turning the bitter water into good water. It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to Him. Okay, so pay attention to this part. God's setting a standard for them, a faithfulness test, right? He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, obeying His commands and keeping all His decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. After leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there beside the water. So the Israelites have this legitimate need for water. They complain to Moses. Moses cries out to God. God provides them with water. But then he also gives them this instruction, and this is really the important part in the passage. He says, I'm going to test you. I'm going to test your faithfulness by giving you instructions, and I expect you to follow them. And when you do what I tell you to do, which demonstrates your trust in me, and God says some, some things are going to happen. In this particular passage, he says, I'm not going to allow the diseases that I inflicted upon the Egyptians to come on you. 
And the natural way to read this is that all of those plagues that fell upon the Egyptians, God says, those are not going to come upon you. You're my people. All I'm asking you to do is to do what I tell you to do. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you water, right? Because he gives them water first, meets their need, and says, now as I'm doing that, I'm going to give you some instructions. I just want you to follow those instructions. And God continues to test His own people in that way throughout the Scriptures and gives a variety of different reasons for it. This passage immediately just shares one, right? You won't have the diseases that fell upon the issues. Egyptians fall upon you and that you're not going to experience God's judgment, and that's an awesome promise. But there's lots of other reasons why God tests His own people. And in the book of Deuteronomy, which is just a little farther ahead, I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is at the end of 40 years in the desert. Moses is looking back on the events that we're reading right now. He's talking to the people, and he's reminding them of what God was doing, why you guys were struggling with food and water, and what God was trying to teach you. And I'm just going to read to you one verse, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Moses says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey His commands. You see all the things that he's trying to teach there? He says humility is one of the things that God teaches through testing, right? That capacity to yield and allow God to do what He wants to do. He says, God was teaching you humility. And then He says also to prove your character, right? To show what's really inside your heart. Are you going to follow me? Are you going to lead the way that I direct you to? It's really a proving of our own character that God wants to get at. And then to find out whether we're going to be obedient, right? To teach us to obey. If you're humble and you're beginning to obey, then God's doing a work in your life. He was doing it in the work of the people of Israel. He does that also in the work of every Christian. In the New Testament, the kind of framework for that is we talk about growing in Christ or growing in Christ-like, becoming more like Jesus. That's the, the kind of the ultimate pattern for obedience that we follow as Christians is the obedience of Jesus. And God does that by testing us, right? By challenging us by giving us stretching circumstances because He wants to develop those things in us. When He tests then, God is not trying to fail us, okay? It's not like school. Most of us, when we think of tests, we think of school. We're in a school right now, and schools tend to be this pass-fail, and we take that and we apply that to God. That's not what God's trying to do. God is testing in the developmental sense, right? He's the way you would test the strength of a piece of metal by bending it, see how strong it is. That's a test. I've got a picture of something else that uh, gets tested. Um, this is an, an engine, it's just whatever, generic kind of engine. Years ago, I got to tour a Ford uh, motor plant where they were building engines. That's all they built at this plant, and this, you know, the finished product looks something like that. At the end of the process, there were workers who hooked up the engine and actually started it. They were testing it to make sure that it run, make sure that it was adequate, that it was a good product, right? They weren't trying to fail the engine. They just want to make sure, does this thing run well? Is it prepared for its greater purpose? Because at Ford, they don't just build engines and then sell them to you so you can bring them home and like put it on your shelf and look at it. An engine is supposed to power something, right? Here's the, yeah, maybe something like that. If you're lucky, you might get a car like that that's got a Ford engine, right? So they're testing it at the plant so that when it goes in a car like that, it can perform, 
right? That engine has a great purpose. Now, I, this is just an example. It falls apart, obviously, at levels. You're not an engine getting stuck into a car, right? But you get my point, right? It's a kind of testing that prepares you something for something great, for a destiny that God has for us. I apologize doing a Mustang like that. I know for some of you guys, for the next five minutes, you're going to be totally distracted thinking, is that a Shelby? I wonder what kind of engine would be underneath the car like that. What year would that be? And, you know, anyways, try and concentrate as we move on from there. The second point, right? The first one, why does God test His own people? What's He trying to do? Develop character, right? Grow us, develop our trust. Second point, where God's people fail the test, Jesus succeeds. In every single one of the three stories we're going to look at, we've just done one so far, we're just going to do the second now, the people fail the test. They don't trust. They get upset. They grumble. They complain every time. And we're going to see just in a minute how Jesus does the opposite. But let's read this story first, this second uh, case of the people grumbling, and we're in Exodus chapter 16. Let me flip my way back to it and read to you. I'm going to start in chapter 16 in verse 1. And look at the case of the people's hunger and God's provision of manna. So verse 16, chapter 16, verse 1. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam. That was the place with 70 palm trees, lots of water. And they journeyed into the wilderness of Sin between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there, that is in the wilderness, on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There, too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted, but now you have brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. This is good grumbling and whining. It probably would be good to read it in a whiny voice, really, right? It's something like this, right? There we sat around pots filled with meat, ate all the bread we wanted, but now you brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. Something like that. I think that's probably how it sounded to Moses anyways. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out, pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this. Okay? The testing's back. I'm going to provide food, but it's also a test. I'm going to test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. Moving on to verse uh, verse 13, rather. That evening, vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp. (coughs) Quail that they killed and ate, okay? The next morning, the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it, they asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And Moses told them, it's the food the Lord has given you to eat. These are the instructions from the Lord. Each household should gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people complain, they don't have any food. God provides, but He's also testing them in His provision. He tests them in three ways, as the rest of that chapter explains. First of all, He says, gather two quarts per person. There's a very specific amount of food that you're supposed to gather each day, and it's just for that day. It's literally their daily bread, two quarts. They go out. Some people collect more than two quarts. Some people don't collect enough. And then the passage says, but in the end, everybody had enough. 
The sad thing is, is that they were disobedient. They didn't all consistently just gather two quarts. The only thing that the people actually did right was that they went out to collect the food. That they did. <laughs> but the amount they did not get right, they didn't follow the Lord's instruction. That's the first way that they failed the test. The second way that they failed the test is that they weren't supposed to keep any extra overnight. You're just supposed to collect for the day and then finish it off or discard it. Don't try and keep it for the next day because it's going to go bad. What did the people do? Some people kept it overnight just to see if maybe it would be okay for them. And it spoiled. It was full of maggots and all nasty, and they had to get rid of it. And they failed that second test. God had specifically said, don't try and save it overnight. The third thing he says is, on the, on the day before the Sabbath, so the Sabbath for them was on a Saturday, so he says, on Friday, gather twice as much food as you usually gather, because on the Sabbath, I'm not going to provide any manna, okay? So uh, the day before that, you've got to gather twice as much, and it's okay. That night, it won't spoil. You'll be okay. You'll be able to eat it the next day. And God was teaching them, as you read the passage, about Sabbath. You remember in, in creation, God works for six days to create, and on the seventh day, He rests, He says. God's still teaching that. He says, on the seventh day, I'm not going to provide food for you. I'm resting, and I want you to rest too. Don't go out and collect food. There won't be any. What do you think that they do on the Sabbath? That people go out and they look and they see if there's any food. <laughs> Now, again, you want to be sympathetic to them? Nobody's ever experienced this before. Nobody's ever ex experienced miraculous food coming down from heaven each day. So you have to have a little pity for them. But God did give them very specific instructions about what to do, and they just had a terrible time following these instructions. And God was using it as a test to teach those things that we talked about in the first point. Moses talks more about these tests in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Again, I'm going to read one more verse and illustrate again what God was teaching them. Moses says in verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, He humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The mouth of the Lord. So Moses said, God was teaching you with this manna. He was providing for you, but he wanted to make sure that you understood that you don't live just by food. You live by the Word of God, what I say to you. That's the lesson that the people were supposed to learn through getting manna every day. Now, if those words, I hope they might sound a little bit familiar to you because Jesus quotes those words in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 4, he quotes those exact words from Moses. And it's important for us to understand what Jesus is saying because Jesus is fulfilling in his own life what the people of Israel could not do in their life. Right? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He's just been baptized. The Spirit has come down upon him. A voice from heaven, the voice of his Father has said, this is my Son who pleases me. And the very first thing that happens after this amazing, miraculous demonstration of who Jesus is, is He heads out into the desert. It says in verse 1 of chapter 4 in Matthew, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For forty days and forty nights He fasted and became very hungry. So just like the people of Israel headed out into the desert to be tested by the Lord for forty years, Jesus heads out into the desert 
to be tested by the devil, in his case for 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasts. He's, he's reliving the life of Israel, and he's doing it as the representative of the whole nation, and he's going to be faithful in all the ways that Israel was not faithful. He's going to achieve what the people of Israel never could achieve. They never could trust the Lord that way. They never could do exactly what he said, but Jesus is going to, okay? His first temptation comes in verse 3. During that time, the devil came to and said to him, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Makes sense. He's starving. He's really hungry. Satan says, why don't you just turn these loaves into bread? You know, God provided manna. Your father, you can just do it with a rock. Jesus declines. Jesus said to him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, I am not going to do that. I don't exert power for my own purposes. I'm here to humbly obey my Father because I live on what the Father tells me to do, not just bread. And he passes the test that the Israelites failed, right? And it's part of his salvation purpose and what he's going to do uh, in the world. So, what does it mean to live on God's Word and not by bread alone? Think about the people of Israel. They were provided with bread every day for the 40 years that they were in the desert. They did have bread, but they all died. That generation all died in the desert because they refused to believe what God had promised them, that He was going to take them into the promised land, that He was going to give them victory over the Canaanites and give that nation to themselves. They got really close to the promised land. Do you know the stories about the spies checking out the land and saying, it's amazing, it's awesome, but the people are there, they're like giants, and the people became afraid, and they pulled back. And they refused to believe God's promise when He said, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to defeat all these people and take you into the promised land. So even though they had bread every day, they still died because they didn't live by the bread of the Word of God. And that's a great calling to us, right? We can think that we're walking with Jesus. Oh, yeah, I go to church. You know, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. But we don't trust Him. And if we don't, we're not feeding on the Word that He's spoken to us, that gift of salvation. We can have everything else in life but still be dead on the inside, just like the Israelites were. So it's a great warning and encouragement to us. Lastly, we pass God's testing when we put our trust in Jesus and His presence with us, right? That's how we have the potential to pass the test, through trusting in Jesus, the one who's going to fulfill all of the tests that are put forward before Him and His life. Let me read the last story for you as we get close to wrapping up here. We're in Exodus chapter 17. This is the third story of whining and complaining from the people, and I'm reading from chapter 17, verse 1. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. Sounds familiar? So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? Right? The tables are being turned. God says, I'm going to test you in the desert. And the people are like, no, you're not. We're going to put you to the test by complaining. But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Again, the whining. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? 
Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. But the Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses named the place Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? Okay, that's the key question. Is the Lord with us or isn't he? Look at the way that God provided here. It's different again, right? This time, the Lord says, I'm going to stand on a rock at Mount Sinai, the place where he's going to reveal himself fully. And it doesn't describe how he was there or if anybody could see, but he said, I'm going to be there. And then with your staff, Moses, strike the rock and water's going to come out. Now, here's the astonishing thing. In the New Testament, it says clearly that Jesus was the rock that the people of Israel drank from. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it describes crystal clear. It says Jesus was that rock that the people drank from. He's the one there providing for the people. And it's this astonishing picture of the cross, if you think about it, right? God's standing on the rock. He's right there, and he says, strike it, and water will come out which is a beautiful picture of the cross, right? Which Jesus is on, and he's struck and killed, and out from the cross pours life, right? There's this great hymn that we sing, Here is Love, and it's got this verse that I, I just, is one of my favorite verses, and it says, On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. From the floodgates of God's mercy, flowed a vast and gracious tide, right? So it's got this picture of the cross on this mountain, and at the mountain, all of a sudden, these floodgates open, and God's mercy pours out because Jesus has been struck for our sins. That's the good news. That's the gospel right there. It's astonishing how it's hidden right inside this story. Jesus, again, providing for his people, and then committing, particularly Jesus, always to be with his people, when he sends out his disciples, his last command to them, we call it the Great Commission, to go out and make disciples and to teach them to obey all that I commanded, exactly the kind of thing that God's teaching the people in the desert, right, to be obedient. He says his promise to them is, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gives the very same promise. You can trust me. This is the word you can live by. Jesus says, I'm with you always. And this was the promise that the people struggled with. They tested God by saying, is God with us or not? We don't ever have to ask that question because Jesus has promised that he's going to be with us. And if we want to live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, then we can stand on that promise and live by it. We don't have to wonder. Yeah, Jesus says he will be with us. The simple question is, are we going to believe that? Are we going to trust that he is?